our reading this morning is Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verse 41. It's an awesome story. And I really enjoyed uh, thinking it through this week. Um, It was harder for me to prepare than I imagined, but I think it's because I enjoyed it so much. So Luke 2, 41 and following. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Grass withers, flowers fade, this good word endures forever. So parents, I mean, (laughs) have you ever been out with your young children and all of a sudden you're looking up and they're not there? You know, you don't see them and there's this awful, terrible panic feeling. There's a story my parents told me over and over again growing up. We lived, they were doing a short-term mission thing. We lived in Auckland, New Zealand, and my dad took me to the bank. And the bank was only a few miles from our house, but it was located on this really busy four-lane road. And so my dad parked the car, we walked to the front door. I was trailing behind him. He was really preoccupied, had a lot on his mind. So he opened the door, he walked in, and this big black door just closed between him and me. And I was, I have this mental picture in my mind looking at this dark door, and I'm out by myself in front of the bank. And so I just look at that for a little while and I turn around and I decide I'm gonna walk home. And so I cross this four lane road and I began walking down the sidewalk towards my house. Meanwhile, it dawns on my dad what just happened. And so he looks around, can't find me. He races in his car home. He speeds home and tells my mother, she lets him have it. And then they get in the car and they start searching for me and they find me. Thankfully, they find me on the sidewalk and this lady had me in her arms. She saw me, this little three-year-old, walking down the sidewalk. She ran out of her house and took hold of me and held me until mom and dad got there. And the story so deeply affected my parents, they told it to me over and over again as I grew up. 
Now, as a parent, I remember that panic feeling when I lost sight of one of my children, either maybe at a department store on the beach, which is worse. And, well, I may have gotten mixed up once or twice and left one of my children at church. I've been at church, and maybe one of you returned to church to pick up one of your children. Thankfully, it was more funny than frantic. But every parent can sympathize with Mary and Joseph here. I mean, Mary is the source of the story. Luke, when visited with her, most likely, she she probably told it in person to him. It deeply affected her, that feeling of, of losing Jesus. But even more than that, what she learned through it I mean, it's a great story. It's the only story in scripture that records anything about Jesus between his birth narratives and when he burst on the scene in his public ministry at 30 years of age. There's some inferences, but this is the only account of something that's happened. God's revelation often doesn't satisfy our curiosity. Um, We'd like to know more. In fact, that Itch was so present in the early church that there were some apocryphal works who invented fantastic stories of Jesus during his childhood, trying to scratch that itch, but those aren't inspired. And the gospels aren't biographies in the sense that we get all the information. The gospels have a focus. The focus isn't to tell us everything, but in God's providence, in his selection, he gives us what he knows is necessary for us to understand the significance of Jesus' person and work for our salvation, and they center on the cross. Well, that's the point of this story, too. So just thinking it through, apart from how deeply the event impacted Mary, why does Luke judge it as the story of Jesus's boyhood, surely among others, that he feels led by divine inspiration to include in his gospel for our eternal good. Like why this one among others? And what's so significant about it? What are we supposed to learn from it? And I hope I'm going to retell it and then draw out some applications and I hope you'll appreciate it even more. So Jesus's parents, Mary and Joseph are described as pious Israelites. They're a covenant family. And they have the family practice of making the 80-mile trek from Nazareth up to Jerusalem every year for the feast of Passover. And remember, the Old Testament law required all Israelite men to go up to Jerusalem three times a year for the three annual feasts. For Passover together with unleavened bread, which is an eight-day total feast, for Pentecost, and then also for tabernacles. However, by this time, a lot's gone on. You see, Israel's gone into exile. You remember, they've been dispersed to foreign lands, then many of them have returned, but many are still, you know, living in Egypt and other places. So by this time, it was customary for Israelite men to go up once a year, and the most popular feast was Passover, it wasn't actually required that the women go, but by this time it was, it was common. And so Mary makes it a habit to accompany Joseph every year for the Passover. They're a devoted couple. And remember, they're, they're a carpenter family. They're subsistence living. 
So they take two weeks out of earnings and a lot of effort every year and they go to avail themselves of God's means of grace with God's people. It's that important. And so Mary and Joseph again go up to Jerusalem for the Passover when Jesus is 12 years old. And it seems the kids always went with their parents, but Mary and Luke highlights this one because of what happened on this occasion and also because for a boy, especially the 12th year was very significant. It was a transition year from boyhood to manhood. Kind of a rite of passage year. And though the parents always raised their children to know God in the scriptures, they took it seriously. During a boy's 12th year, they invested special attention in his instruction, the word in preparation for that ceremony on his 13th year, in which he would officially become a responsible covenant member, like a full-fledged member, responsible to keep the whole law as a young man and to hold to all his vows as a young man. So he's between childhood and adulthood here. Uh, Later that ceremony is gonna be called Bar Mitzvah, son of the commandment. So in Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on this occasion when it concluded, uh, the family joined up with their group, their traveling company, their caravan, family and friends, and acquaintances from around Nazareth. They joined together to travel to make the 80-mile trek. It was good for logistics and also for safety and just fellowship. Yet without his parents being aware of it, Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. So his family hikes all that day with their band of pilgrims. They go 20 to 25 miles that day walking. Mary and Joseph figured he was with other family and friends. I mean, it's a testimony of their confidence in him. They trusted him. It was a chaotic, festive time. So everyone looked out for each other and you were visiting with different people in the walk. Also, sometimes men walked in the back and women walked up front. So there's a mix up. You know, Joseph could think, well, he's a child. He's going to hang out with the kids up front. He's such a good brother. And Mary is thinking, well, he's trying to become a man. He's going to be with the men in the back. So there's just big mess up that day. Well, at the end of the first day's travel, when the families come back together to make camp for the night, so your family would come back together, Jesus doesn't appear. And so Mary and Joseph start asking around. They start looking for him. But to their alarm, as they ask around among the family and friends, no one else has seen him. So imagine that long, anxious night. Nobody's seen him. And Jesus was always so reliable, so what could have happened? So imagine how their minds raced, like where your mind goes, that catastrophic thinking we immediately go to. Imagine that whole night. Rico Tice of Christianity Explored adds to that by just saying, look, in the Greco-Roman world, there were 60 million slaves. And there was always a danger that a slave trader would pick up, especially a boy 12 years old with all that work ahead of him, target him and sell him as a slave. I mean, just imagine what was going on in their minds and hearts at that point. Like, where is he? Imagine Mary, like, I lost the child of promise. Like, how... Did I do that? I had a job. 
Well, early the next day, they hurry back. They, they race 20 to 25 miles. I, I wonder, record time, I imagine. They arrive in the evening and maybe they start looking for him. They hit the pavement, they start asking around, but soon it gets to be night and they have to call it. But the following morning, bright and early, the third day, they start scouring the city for their missing child. And then finally, finally, in the temple complex, maybe in one of the porches or in Solomon's colonnade, they find him. And, and he, Jesus, is sitting in a group of students surrounded by teachers of the law. Jesus is sitting there calmly, thoughtfully, making the most of this amazing opportunity at this pivotal juncture in his life from boyhood to manhood in preparation to sit at the teacher's feet and learn from them. And then following a great feast, it was sometimes the case that a notable teacher would be present. And so how much more important to take advantage of his presence. So Jesus is sitting there and the favorite Jewish method of teaching was question and answer. And so the students would listen to the teachers discuss some point of the law, some theme. And, and, and then they would have the opportunity to ask questions that was all expected. And then the teachers would turn and ask follow-up questions of the students to, to push their understanding and learning. And so 12-year-old Jesus is in that environment and he's deeply impressed everyone teachers, famous teachers, and other students, and they're really amazed, astounded by these lucid, probing questions and thoughtful, profound answers from this 12-year-old boy. Already at 12 years of age, he's showing that wisdom and grace that would stun people and draw them to him. And so into this contemplative scene bursts Mary and Joseph. And just imagine the disruption and they're at their wit's end. I mean, they've been three days wound up, tight with fear, just probably exhausted, spent. And now they're seeing Jesus sitting completely absorbed, lapping it up in his environment at peace, contemplating, speaking with these teachers and not worried. And they're astonished. And it's a complex word suited to their complex emotions. It can mean to be struck out of one's senses. I mean, they're overwhelmed. I mean, that relief at finding him wonder at this scene, baffled by Jesus's tranquility, um, hurt because they feel Jesus has disregarded him. I mean, they feel like he's betrayed his role as a son. He's let him down. And so Mary expresses this hurt with, with really a sharp rebuke. She goes, son, why have you treated us so? Like, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And that word for distress here is really strong. It 
means deep mental pain or trauma to be in agony, anguish. Like we, you don't even know what we've gone through. I mean, can't you feel for Mary, totally feel for Mary, what she's gone through these days? I mean, really it's, I mean, Simeon said a sword was gonna pierce her heart. I mean, it's piercing her heart. It's been three days of that. And yet Jesus responds in, in surprise. He's surprised by her reaction. And it's also a mild reproof from 12-year-old Jesus. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, mothers, like how does that strike you? Why were you looking for me? Like I remember when I was a kid and a youth and sometimes I left the house, I didn't communicate, I stayed too long, my mother got worried and started roaring around the neighborhood looking for me. And when she found me, she responded just like Mary. And for my part, I was sinfully inconsiderate. And if I had responded, why were you looking for me? It just would not have gone well. (laughs) I would have been rude and disrespectful. I mean, is Jesus giving a precedent for preteen rebellion here? Like young people, free pass, leave home and don't tell your parents. Jesus did it. I mean, well, of, of course not. Like, absolutely not. There's something more going on here. We know that can't be the case. I mean, verse 40, he's described through his childhood to this point as being filled with wisdom and growing in the favor of God and with others. And then after, as a bookend, this passage, he increases his wisdom and it grows in favor of God and with others. In Verse 51, after the event, he goes home and he's submissive to them. Um, A big reason this occurred is because he was so respectful and reliable as a son. And so this is to them out of character. But is it out of character? And that's the question. So now before we just jump in to answer it, let's just say Mary and Joseph and Jesus could have done a better job. Uh, they should have made sure he was in the company and Jesus could have been clearer. We affirm Jesus's sinlessness here. He must be sinless to be our redeemer. Yet he can be sinless and still need to grow in wisdom. He can be innocent and still need to be perfected in maturity. And parents, you know that sometimes even in our child rearing that sometimes we think our child has sinned when really our child is just developing and it's something to pay attention to. There's something of all this going on, but there's a deeper reason, the more fundamental reason. 
The reason Mary told this story, the reason Luke includes it is because of Jesus's profound response here. Imagine, imagine Mary sitting down over a cup of tea with Luke. He's wanting to write that orderly account. Oh, brother Luke, we thought he was being insubordinate. We were shocked and we were hurt, but really we just didn't get it. I mean, we were confused. We didn't connect the dots. We had to learn. We had to learn. It was growing for us. We should have known better, but we didn't. Jesus looks at her and says, did you know that I must be in my father's house? The idea is that they should have known. They should have expected he must be in his father's house. And that word must is very important in Luke. Jesus uses it throughout Luke to mark out elements of his saving mission. So even in chapter four, verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to all the cities. In 9.22, Jesus says, and he says this a number of times, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and handed over to be crucified. It's this word of divine necessity, divine obligation, divine imperative from his father to do something for his saving mission. So in this event, in the same way, his father told him at this juncture in his life, he needs to be in the house of learning, preparing more than ever as he becomes a man right now, taking advantage of those teaching opportunities. So the sense of Jesus's response is that Mary and Joseph already had enough information to know that he must be in his father's house. On the one hand, they should have known that if he's not in Joseph's house, meaning in Joseph's company, that the only other option is he's gonna be in his father's house. He doesn't just run around doing what he wants to do. It's one or the other. And even more, it's that his unique identity as son of God has to take first place over his sonship to his earthly parents. It just has to. I mean, just imagine if there were ever a complex relational dynamic, and we have them. How about having a legal human father while being by nature the son of God and trying to juggle that? Imagine Mary, we should have known better, but we missed it. The contrast is put so sharply. Mary, it's uncustom, it's odd for the Greek. Your father and I have been searching for you. Jesus saying, I have to be in my father's house. That's the point at issue. Who's my real father? And who do I have to obey first? Who takes precedent? And they have to learn that. How should they have known? Like, what is Jesus building upon all this information that they have that they ought to expect him to be in his father's house? Well, the virginal conception. All the revelation God has given of Jesus' birth and presentation. 
I mean, the imagery is that Jesus is the true David. And David says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. How much more the true David? Or Jesus is the true Moses and Moses built the tabernacle. Jesus is the true Samuel and Samuel's that miracle baby that Hannah gave to the temple service as a three or four or five year old. I'm fulfilling these roles in my person. Of course I'm going to be here. Or even more clearly, verse 32 of chapter one, he will be great, Gabriel to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Don't you see who I am? And yet, in first century Judaism, you could understand those statements in purely a messianic manner. Like they, they referred to his role. The king was the adoptive son of God. It didn't mean he was deity, but he was the representative of God among the people. So they could have been looking at all this and saying, well, the virginal conception, yeah, it, he's a miracle baby, but how far does that go? Or Jesus is the son of God, but is that just that he's the Messiah who particularly represents God? And so Jesus right here at this pivotal place in his life, this chapter, this passage is so important because Jesus beyond a shadow of a doubt says, no, 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 wait a second. It's deeper than you think. It's not just legal. It's not just a role. I'm not just a miracle baby. It means so much more. It means I'm God's son by nature. Like I'm God. And he's my father in the most intimate way. Like I've always had fellowship with him. It's weird for me not to be right there with him at his side. I have to be in his house. The weird thing is not that I've been peacefully in his house for three days, but that I hadn't been there my entire life. The strange thing is that I left his side to come down to this world in the first place. When he tells me to be in his house, I'm gonna be in his house. And so Mary tells the story and Luke records it to mark off at the outset of the gospel, Jesus's own self-consciousness as a 12-year-old and probably earlier of being the beloved son of God by nature. And everything else in the gospel flows from this. In fact, the whole gospel flows from this. He has to be God to save you. God became man and dwelt among us. And it's so powerful because these are the very first words Jesus utters. And it's so powerful because it's the first time Jesus himself has an active role in what's going on. And so he's setting the stage and, and putting the direction, I'm God's son by nature. He's my father and we're doing this. We're doing this. And so a few applications real quick. I just want you to think about the gospel here. Imagine the weight Jesus is feeling right now. You see, Passover was so important. 
he's at the verge of becoming a man and fully responsible to keep the law and fully responsible to hold to his vows. Passover. Take that lamb, sacrifice it, put the blood on your doorpost because the destroying angels come. You deserve that judgment, but if the angel sees that blood, he's passing over you. You washed clean, you're free. And in Exodus 12, it says, it's a family event. The kids are around and the kids are supposed to ask, what does this mean? What does this service mean? And so the parents told the gospel to their children. Now think of Jesus at this moment of increased self-consciousness of who he is. I gotta keep the whole law. What does that mean for me? I gotta hold to my vows. I promise to redeem. I'm the Passover lamb. Like, what does that mean? Like, I'm that. What, what, how weighty must that have been on him? And doesn't it make sense that he'd need a few days away from his parents to process all that and in his father's presence? Like, Father, that's me? Like, my blood is gonna be put on the doorposts? judgment would pass over your people that's what I'm that's what's before me think of his relationship here I mean the most natural place for Jesus to be is in his father's house I've been listening to Dolly Parton's America y'all listen to that podcast and so Tennessee mountain home people all over the world love it in the Middle East in Africa people have their own Tennessee mountain home and it locks into, we all want to be home. And that's why we love it when we get home, but we all know we're created for home. And Jesus is saying, I'm home in my Father's presence. He's my Father. But you know what? Through the gospel, Jesus comes to be that Passover lamb so that when he says, I must be in my father's house, you can say, I am in my father's house. And that's what Jesus says in John 14, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. You are home through the gospel of Christ. Think of Jesus' devotion here. He is hungering and thirsting for God's word. He's absorbed in it. Does that look like us? Young people at 12 years old, do you hunger and thirst for God's word like this? He models it for us. Jeremy asked this morning, an illustration, what's 350 pounds of gold? Google says it's $7.5 million, but God's word is so much more valuable and precious than that, and you see that in Jesus. Let me learn it. Let me learn it and treasure it up. Confusion. We can be confused. Think of the things you're going through in life. None of your lives are just straightforward. And Jesus' discipleship and shepherding of you is not often completely clear. Mary and Joseph are confused. They want to do right, but they are confused. They expect Jesus to do a certain thing and Jesus does something else. How about in your life? Have you expected, you had a road map and it didn't quite go the way you had envisioned. 
Joel Beakey says it this way, following up on a Puritan, sometimes we can lose Jesus in our family and friends and journeying. We lose sight of him. It might be because of the dark night of the soul. It might be because of trials. It might be because of our sin. We lose sight of him. We demand certain things. We don't know if he's present with us. On his end, he's present. What we see in this passage is he's drawing us close to understand him better and know him better. Jeremy mentioned that this morning. It's an opportunity to know him better. It doesn't feel good. It didn't feel good. They were deeply distressed. You might be in a place where you are deeply distressed today in pain and anguish. And this story tells you, don't despair. He's using that in his grace to let you know him better. And finally, calling. Jesus has a mustness, and you have a mustness in Jesus. God's given you a role, a calling in your life, and that calling is not often easy either. Jesus certainly wasn't, and sometimes it's tough, and sometimes we just want to sit loose to it, but Jesus is saying, look, I have a mustness, and I'm going to stick with it. God's telling you through this passage, stick with your callings, and when you do so, when it's tough, you're filling up in your body what's lacking of the sufferings of Christ, and you're in fellowship with Jesus in the gospel in a deep way, and you get to know him and trusting that he's doing his eternal good in and through you. And the world's gonna be different. People are gonna be different through you sticking with that calling he's entrusted to you. What a beautiful passage, beautiful. Might we meditate on it today and through the year. May God add his grace to us, amen.